Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This season, we're talking about power and the many ways that power shapes the most important stories of our time. The pandemic has been profoundly difficult for so many people. But anytime there's a disruptive situation, someone figures out a way to benefit. Almost no one has benefited more from COVID-19 than Amazon.com. The numbers are striking. In 2020, the company saw a nearly 200% rise in profits and its sales rose over 30%. For the first time, the company employed more than a million workers globally. It can be a real challenge to understand the rise and impact of a company so big and with so much power. But today we have someone here to help us. Alec McGillis is an award-winning journalist who covers politics and government for ProPublica. He's the author of a new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. It's a book about Amazon, and it's also a book about much more than Amazon. It's a book that's meant to be about the ways Amazon symbolizes and embodies many of the trends in the United States that have led to growing inequality between rich people and poor people, and importantly, between richer and poorer geographical regions, and even richer and poorer cities in close juxtaposition to each other. It's a book that sets out to transcend its own subject, a tall order for any book. And we have Alec McGillis here to talk about it with us. Alec, thank you so much for being here and congratulations on your very bold uh, and ambitious new book, Fulfillment. I want to begin by asking you, how did you get the idea to write a book that is both about Amazon and not about Amazon? What road led you uh, to this conception? 
the road started really not with Amazon at all, but but with this you know this issue of regional inequality, these disparities that I would see when I was going around the country as a national reporter. I would go to the Midwest, you know, or Appalachia or whatever it might be in the sort of great recession years. That's when I really started doing that kind of serious national reporting and and just being so struck by these disparities. These cities out in the Midwest that were just really reeling during the recession. Then you'd come back to Washington and you see this incredible prosperity on display and this, t- this total disconnect, really, with what was going on elsewhere in the country. And it, and it kind of drove me crazy, just the, the complacency that you'd see in Washington, um, no, no real notion of just how bad things had gotten out there. And and I th- saw it again when I moved back up to Baltimore, where I live now, and just seeing in those 40 miles between Baltimore and Washington, just how huge the disparity was growing ever wider, and wanting to write about that. And then after Trump got elected, realizing just how big the political fallout from this these divides was and but then finally decided to write about it through the frame of amazon chose that as my frame and chose it as the frame for two reasons one the company is now so ubiquitous that it's just a very kind of handy way to take you around the country because it's it's everywhere now in our life so it's just a good thread to sort of show who we are now as a country but but more importantly it was a good frame because it itself helps to explain the problem the tech giants are are a big reason for these these regional inequalities because the regional inequality is based partly in in economic concentration the concentration of our economy in uh, just a handful of companies has driven a lot of this concentration of wealth in certain places let me ask you first a historical question and then an economic question about this place you started the regional inequalities so when I think in a, in a non-scientific way about the history of regional inequality and disparity of wealth in the United States, my first instinct is to say that's almost baked into the history of the country. You know, if you think of the fight over ratifying the Constitution in 1788, 89, huge geographic difference in desire to ratify, reflecting huge disparities in wealth between you know, small farmers in the interior and growing merchant class closer to the coasts. Tell me whether you see the geographical disparity in in wealth that you're seeing now as in some way different in kind than the kinds of disparities that we saw in the United States at other moments when our economy was shifting to a new kind of economy. I see it as different both in degree and kind. For starters, while we've always have had wealthier and poorer places in the country, of course, the gaps have just gotten a lot bigger. Just the way that the, the gaps have gotten a lot bigger on the income ladder between you know the 1% and the 99%, so have the regional gaps gotten bigger. So for instance, as recently as 1980, there were only certain small parts of our country that had median income that was 20% or greater than the average or 20% or lower than the, than the average. Most of the country kind of clustered close to the median. Now, huge swaths of the country are above that plus 20% line or, or below 20% or below the average. So just great growth at the at the extremes of wealthier and poorer regions. But I also see it as different in, in kind. What has happened, it has a lot to do with sort of tech-dominated economy. What's happened is that the tech economy encourages agglomeration of prosperity and dynamism in a way that did not happen during the sort of the manufacturing heavy economy that we had 
for most of the 20th century. In a manufacturing economy, one simple way of thinking about it is that once you come up with a given advance, say the steel making process, you could take that technology, that advance anywhere that had the manpower and the national resources and the transportation links, and you could build a steel mill. And, and, that you, and that's what you had those all over, all across the Northeast and in the Midwest. The tech economy is different. The, the value lies entirely in the, almost entirely in the initial innovation. It's all about coming up with the advances, creating the software, creating the app, whatever it might be. And, and so it's all about having the human capital to produce that innovation. And those innovations come often through proximity, through the proximity of having all those you know, great minds together with each other and with the great and with the capital to to fund their work. That's how you end up with sort of the growth of clusters like like a Silicon Valley, where despite the the incredible expense of living there and doing business there, you know, and the sort of dystopian levels of wealth and congestion and kind of unaffordability of those places, they still exert a pull because you you sort of feel like you need to be there to be in the mix, and so you end up with an agglomeration. Of of wealth of a sort that we really on levels that we have not had before. Um, it really is a new kind of thing. While we might feel like we've always had wealth here in poor cities, in fact, what we're dealing with now is on a different scale. That leads to my second question about the agglomeration thing, which is that when it comes to, I don't know, let's say a social media company that in raw numbers doesn't have that many employees, but it's super rich, there is some sort of human capital feature. Amazon, in a way, seems like a different kind of company in that it's not primarily just based on its technology. It has technology businesses that are that probably do benefit from this. But with respect to uh, a lot of what Amazon does, it is capable of being less agglomerated. It is capable of being more for far-flung and, and more distributed. So it, I wonder about how you see Amazon itself fitting into that model that you're describing, the model where agglomeration of people and putting them near each other has made some places super rich as opposed to other places. I see Amazon very much as actually as, as fitting into that model. What makes Amazon different than Google or Facebook is that it has a mass workforce that is in the warehouses, that is in the fulfillment centers and, and is, is doing the actual physical work of t- delivering these physical products, which is what made it so appealing for me to use them as my frame is that you actually have a physical manifestation of the company in all these different forms out around the country in a way that Google and Facebook do not. There's just a landscape, an ecosystem to writing about Amazon that that they lack. But as far as the actual headquarters operations of Amazon, they it is very much a, a classic case of agglomeration. The reason why Jeff Bezos chose Seattle early on to locate his company was partly because there were tax advantages to doing so, to putting the company in Seattle, not in California, but also because Microsoft was already in Seattle and he knew there was a workforce, a, you know, skilled tech workforce there that he could draw on in building his company. And just as now in setting out to build his second headquarters, because Amazon was outgrowing Seattle with 45,000 tech employees crammed into, crammed into the city, they need a new home, and what city do they choose for their new home? But Washington D.C., a city that also has a large, skilled, tech-heavy workforce, as a result of all those IT contractors in the D.C. area that they could draw off of. And then you look at the other, their smaller 
satellite offices of several thousand each, and those are all in the tech capital. So you, Boston now is just, they just announced they're going to expand to Boston up to about 7,000 salary tech types in Boston. New York's second headquarters in New York, they're getting several thousand more there. So they got a bunch in the Bay Area. They got a bunch in Austin. So it's very much a case of them putting those people in the places where there are a lot others of those people. One of the really beautiful things about the book is the way that you go out to these fulfillment centers all over the country and tell at a very human level, the reader really gets the feeling of getting to know a little bit about the people whom you've interviewed and you've really gotten to know them in depth, who are experiencing the effects of Amazon's economic power. That is, they are dealing with the reality that they don't have much negotiating power of their own vis-a-vis this huge employer who may ultimately be the only really available employer in town or the only employer at scale in town. And you show compellingly that the company exercises that economic power with respect to wages, with respect to hours, with respect to, to work conditions. And you humanize that. And I think that's tremendously powerful and a, a great contribution to the book. As I read those descriptions, the thought that kept running through my mind was, this is all terribly upsetting, but isn't it always very upsetting when one sees the operation of capitalism in practice? You know, if we were looking at other industries that were not as much in the news, that we weren't as reliant on, wouldn't we also see those with economic power, I mean, capital, that is to say, when capital is able to do it, exercising all the power that it can exercise to try to pay his workers as little as possible and extract as much work as possible from them. I'm not saying that's okay, you know, and that is obviously part of the history of why capital has struggled with labor for the last, you know, 180 or so years so intensely. But is there something about this struggle that's really distinctive or different in that way, other than the fact that Amazon's really darn powerful? I, I've thought a lot about this, and I and the, the 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 chapter where I kind of take this on at its core is is the chapter on the extraordinary transformation of a place outside Baltimore called Sparrows Point, which uh, it's a peninsula just southeast of the city. And it was the home to the largest steel plant in the world, Bethlehem Steel Plant that had at its peak about 30,000 people working there, a huge company town, like right adjacent to the steel mill, just this vast industrial works. When things started out there in the early 20th century, it was indeed a very brutal place. It was just, you had incredibly low paid workforce with unbelievably rough hours, two days off a year, two holidays off a year, uh, Christmas and July 4th. They were making about a dollar a day, doing incredibly dangerous work, incredibly d- demanding conditions, and no say on the job. And you ended up finally, of course, over the next few decades with an improvement of, of conditions thanks heavily to the fact that they got organized. And, and so you ended up with those jobs becoming for the latter part of the, of the 20th century, much better paid jobs that were still very treacherous, very dangerous, very challenging, but middle-class jobs that you could support a family on that you, where they had much more say on the job, jobs that made good money and found to some degree purposeful. That meal has now been wiped completely off the face of the earth, declined steadily, relentlessly until it finally went out of business in 2012. It's been wiped off the face of the map um, and it's been replaced by a logistics park, which includes two Amazon warehouses. And I actually found a man who worked at the mill for 30 years and now worked, went to work at the warehouse, making way less money. 
and feeling much less purpose and sense of camaraderie on the job. And, and so I, I do think that, of course, you know, anytime I can think of jobs, other sorts of jobs now that if we look closely at them would seem pretty, you know, bleak and horrific. I can, you know, for instance, what we've learned about the meatpacking plants during in the age of COVID and just what reality is like there is, is bleaker yet than, of course, than what, what, what we see in the warehouses now. But if we compare the warehouses with what has come before them, a sort of a mass workplace, a place where where the average American worker looking for a job can expect to go to work, that that is now has now increasingly become one of these warehouses. They're so um, ubiquitous. They're they're so huge. They're so rapidly growing. They are in a way now the mass workplace of our country. And if you compare them to what became before them at a place like Sparrows Point, a mill where workers were making far more than they're making now in these warehouses and, and you know, have had much more sense of a meaning and purpose in their daily life. Or if you compare them to the retail experience that these warehouses have in, have in some sense sort of replaced, the experience of the department store clerk that, that's been sort of wiped out by the e-commerce revolution, I'm not sure that, that we would say that necessarily that the warehouse experience is no bleaker than, than those things that replaced. I would say that both of those other experiences had some kind of a level of better working conditions conceivably, and also more of a sense of basic humanity and connectedness than what is now on offer in, in the vast windowless warehouse. The root causes of that transformation seem to me to be two. And I wanna ask you about both of them. They're, they're both addressed, I would say, obliquely in, in your book, but not centrally. One is globalization, which is what brought down the American steel mill. It just became much less expensive to produce steel in other places around the world. And the second is, and that of course is repeated across a wide range of construction industries. And the other is unionization, right? The, when the Sparrows Point um, steel plant was at its worst, it's because there weren't yet unions there. And then with the growth and the rise of unions towards their peak in the middle of the 20th century in the U.S., the jobs got quote unquote better in the sense that conditions improved and pay improved. And then with the decline of unions, which of course is linked in some ways to globalization too, they're not totally independent of each other. Those jobs, as you say, disappeared through, as it were, no fault of Amazon's, right? And then the idea of what they get replaced with, yes, it's connected to the e-commerce rev revolution, but in the end, the core point is that the stuff that we buy and sell isn't any more made in the United States, never will be, so I wonder, and you know, unions have also been very much in the news because of efforts in Alabama to unionize par parts of Amazon. So I wonder if you just reflect on those forces, you know, the global press, which is what got rid of those quote unquote good jobs, and then the unionization, which may be a partial solution, but even by your account, doesn't sound like a total solution. It sounds like those jobs in the warehouses would still be pretty bleak, to use your word, even if they were unionized and had better conditions and paid better. If, if the warehouses got unionized in years to come, it would be a really big deal, I do believe. It would be it would serve to some degree to kind of turn the, the arc of history and a couple notches forward again so that in a place like Sparrows Point where you now are back to kind of square one with a non-unionized workforce working a really demanding job at pay less than what they're owed um, with very little say on the job, if you could then kind of lift those jobs up to something that supported a more sort of stable middle-class kind of existence um, with some more sense of 
voice and respect and dignity on dignity on the job. If they if they pull us off, it's it really is a big deal. I mean, it, you can you absolutely can see um, this this spreading to other warehouses. And the fact is that as difficult it is to, to unionize in this day and time, and as aggressively as Amazon has fought it, the warehouses are actually relatively well suited to unionization in a way that so many other forms of 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 our sort of contemporary work are not. You know, it's it's really hard to unionize the gig workers, the Uber drivers that exist outside of kind of a normal employment kind of realm. Whereas whereas the warehouses, you've got thousands of people in one place. And, and so you 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 could see it spreading. And that's why, um, you know, it's also not inconceivable that Amazon is going to be so worried about the spread that there's people have floated the, 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 the prospect that they might shut this place down if it were to vote yes. That That's how that's how much of a threat it would be to them for, for this to become a, a precedent and that they would want to do anything possible to, to just, just, just quash it. Um, so this, the stakes really are, are quite large, but, but as for the larger forces, and this is something that Amazon talked a lot about when I was discussing the book with them. And they said, you know, look, these are all, these are all larger forces at work here that have kind of brought us to this point, technology, globalization, we're, we just happen to be the company that's, that's kind of come to fill this this slot. And if it wasn't us, it'd be some, some company called something else doing what we're doing now. And it just happens to be us. And and that's true to some extent, but I think there's a tendency among a lot of us to kind of, especially including a lot of like sort of liberal wonk types to kind of often just sort of ascribe too much to sort of grand systemic structural forces and leave personal and corporate responsibility out of the picture. I mean, there are choices that the company has made over the years that have made these some of these problems especially acute. The things I describe in the book, the, the, the aggressiveness with which the company has, from its very founding, pursued um, tax avoidance at all different levels. The, the extremity of its of the demands, the production demands in the warehouses. The fact that it has that it further exacerbated regional inequality by by choosing to put the big second headquarters in the richest city in America, Washington, D.C., instead of seeing this as an opportunity to somehow spread spread the wealth a little bit by putting the company in in a St. Louis or a Cleveland. Um, These are all choices the company made. And so I do think absolutely there are larger structural forces at work, and the book is not intended to, to somehow hold Amazon singularly responsible for everything about the way we live and we are today. The company is partly, is partly, as I said at the outset, also an expression, a symptom, a metaphor for sort of who we are now. But it is also partly an explanation and a cause. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. One of the pairings that you do a great job of highlighting uh, in the book is the Washington, D.C. with its tremendous economic growth in recent decades versus Baltimore, just a short distance away. And you've written both for the, for the Baltimore Sun and for the Washington Post, so you're ideally uh, qualified to, to write about this. And you say that the disparity between the two is sort of like they're different worlds, which I agree with entirely. You also say that it's unprecedented. And I, I sort of wondered about the unprecedented part because I immediately thought of Newark, New Jersey, and New York, New York, which I'm not sure, I mean, obviously Newark's a lot smaller than New York, but they're pretty darn close together. And, you know, Newark once had a a thriving middle class um, and then didn't. Um, And the disparity is really extraordinary because parts of Newark are among the poorest places in the United States. Of course, so are some parts of New York City itself. I mean, you could also argue that, you know, East New York, taken as its own city, is extraordinarily disparate in its poverty relative to the unimaginable wealth of Manhattan. And, you know, you can almost see one from the other. that's That's how close they are to each other. And it made me wonder again if this kind of just tremendous wealth disparity isn't kind of cooked into capitalism or cooked into American capitalism. And and maybe in a certain way, long has been. That's not to excuse it. You know, it could be just as bad if it's been going on all the time. I mean, that'd be sort of like saying that, you know, racial injustice in the United States today is unprecedented. It isn't. We've had racial injustice of an even more extreme form throughout most of our history. It still makes the racial injustice we have really evil. So it's not that if something has been around for a long time, that excuses it. And I don't mean to be suggesting that it would. It just made me wonder about the rich get richer, poor get poorer elements that are built into capitalism itself, with the small exception of that period in the middle of the 20th century when, because of unionization and the the results of World War II, roughly speaking, in a rapidly growing economy, 
we got something like the burgeoning middle class that we now like to think back on as almost an idealized moment. I think it is different, though, what we have now. I think there's something especially stark about two, having two actual cities of actually quite similar scale sitting side by side that are now unrecognizably different prospects and prosperity. Two actual cities that with actual downtowns and similar full urban structures of relatively similar weight, much different than the New York, New York example, which, yes, of course, that's always been a very, very stark juxtaposition, but it was very much also apple and oranges just in terms of scale. But to have two cities that were where not so long ago, one was even was was actually larger than the other, despite the fact that Washington was the was the national capital, Baltimore actually was in some, some ways still more of a quote real city with with actual much larger population, more more sort of the tra- some more of the trappings of a real city. You know, it was the place you went to see baseball. There was it wasn't even baseball in, in Washington, DC. And so now to have those two cities uh, that had once been a relatively similar scale now would just be so I mean, unrecognizably different to the point where I experience a kind of dizziness when I go to Washington, D.C. The, the atmospheric pressure is so different between the two cities. It's just, it's mind boggling. If you've spent, you know, a day in D.C. Or, or you're just living there and you come take the train up just 40 miles to Baltimore, it takes less than an hour and you get off a train and, and you're in a city. Like you're, it's not like you've just come to some outlying neighborhood. You're in a coherent city that's been around for a couple centuries. And with all the sort of design of a regular city and feel of a regular city, except that there are there's something wildly different. There's just so much less energy, so many fewer people, incredibly lesser wealth. You know, we're, we're home. The, the, I keep, you know, I, in the book, I talk a lot about the homes, but the fact that we are, that you have one city where, where that is experiencing a massive affordability crisis, and where um, where twenty by one serious count, twenty thousand black people have been displaced in just in the last dozen years or so, and and where your average row house townhouse now costs you know seven eight nine hundred thousand dollars if not more, and just up the road you we are demolishing by the hundreds um, row houses that were in their day you know arguably even nicer than the ones that were that are, that are so expensive now in DC. There's something deeply out of whack about that and kind of and kind of broken in a way that I do think is is new in, in its starkness. I don't disagree with your description at all. I think it's you know it's cogent and accurate. Why isn't the takeaway here that sort of DC saved itself from the fate of Baltimore? I mean when I when I read your book, I, I get a sense of almost um, you know, astonishment that DC became a city with industry, right? That the old DC didn't really have an industry. It had the government, but no one was making much money in the government. And DC managed to achieve a a kind of much higher degree of economic vitality in this period as Baltimore essentially continued to decline. It never fell off a cliff, but it continued to decline in a a pretty steady way. Other than the fact of the disparity, which I, I don't dispute at all, why isn't that actually a happy story for DC, even if it's an unhappy story for Baltimore, because I think you're undercounting the costs of the hyper prosperity. I think you're undercounting the cost of displacement. I think under, undercounting the the cost of the of the unaffordability. What the book argues is that this imbalance is not healthy for, for either kind of city to have things be this out of whack. That there actually is such a thing as a happy middle, and that we that and that the happy middle has been lost in a lot of these places. 
and that we'd be better off both sorts of places would be better off if they're a little bit closer to, to that medium, if there was a greater balance across the board. This reminds me a little bit of the argument you hear on the on the flip side, which is you hear in places like Baltimore where people people worry about, well, gosh, if we're, you know, if we're gonna if we were to get if Amazon had set up shop here or if we if we were if we're gonna get this or that company here, we're gonna be we're gonna end up with, you know, wild gentrification and unaffordability and all that. What that misses is 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 scale. If Baltimore, places like Baltimore have so much so much blight now, so much capacity to spare. Populations that are hundreds of thousands below their below their peak. That the situation has gotten so out of whack that that in fact you could have so much so much growth um, and additional vitality in a city like the Baltimore, St. Louis, or Cleveland before before one was got anywhere close to to a real problem. And because that that's just how extreme the situation has gotten. I the book argues. Or not argues, reports shows that that what has happened in cities like DC and Seattle comes with real costs. That the displacement, that the change of character in these cities, that political poison has has even crept in. And I describe in Seattle around the whole fight over raising taxes on Amazon to try to, to deal with the housing and homelessness problem. Um, I think it's it it takes a certain level of um, one has to look past a lot to believe that what's going on right now in places like the Bay Area and Seattle and New York and DC is, is all a happy story of, of uplift and prosperity without any serious downsides. Again, I don't mean to be saying that suddenly the presence of the very rich is always good, far, far from it. Just that we don't necessarily have an obvious example in the US of the happy middle that you're describing. Do you have in mind, you know, here's a place where that happy middle works, whether it's in the United States or in another country? I do. I, mean, I think there's some places that are somewhat get somewhat closer to the middle. I would say that Philadelphia is somewhat closer to being in that range, and obviously all sorts of problems still experiencing it right now. Horrific regression and violent crime. I would say that that Chicago, to some degree, inhabits something closer to that middle. There are cities in the Midwest, in the interior of the country, that have become some of the few successful kind of you know beacons. In, in middle America, like uh, Columbus, that are, but that, but are at risk now of, of becoming almost their own kind of winner-take-all cities in their regions where you're seeing enormous disparities kind of growing between them and the smaller cities kind of around them in their region, but that are still somewhat of a, of a balance of prosperity and accessibility right now. Gosh, maybe a Denver. Like I think Denver is, strikes me as a place that has managed to be successful without yet becoming completely suffering yet from from the the worst effects of hyper prosperity. But you really you do have to you have to look for them. Most places I think of really tend to to fall into one or the other. And again, it's not that growth is bad. It's not, and I guess that's why I get so frustrated when I hear people in Baltimore warning about warning about the effects of growth in a place that so desperately needs it and that can so easily accommodate it. But it's all about scale. And there's just there's no question that a place like DC has is experiencing the effects of a kind of hyper prosperity that is going to get even more extreme now that you've got 25,000 more of these these well-paying jobs that are going to be coming in in the coming years. 
just billions more invested across the river there in Crystal City. And 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 that there would have been it, it would have probably been better for both sorts of places if that kind of investment had had ended up elsewhere. But that's as Amazon sees it, that's not how things work. Your book does a really extraordinary job of telling the story of bipolar distributions of wealth and of opportunity. What do you see as your intended audience? Because you can imagine it being sort of like in the Upton Sinclair tradition, you know, of his description of the horror of meatpacking plants, you know, when, when he was writing, Sinclair famously said that he was, he was actually trying to turn people into socialists, but instead what he got was food, you know, processing reform. But that is the kind of book which was clearly intended to make people sit up and take notice and do something differently as a consequence. And there's another kind of reporting that I think is trying to capture the zeitgeist, you know, say where we are as a country right now so that when historians look back or when we look at ourselves in the mirror, we get some sense of, of who we are as a country. If those are sort of two poles, you know, the book that's designed reportage to draw people's attention to an ill and seek to fix it, and a work which could be a work of literature or fiction or nonfiction that's designed really to explain the world to us. Where on that continuum, if that is a fair continuum, do you see your own book falling? That's a very well-described spectrum, and I would say somewhere in the middle. To the extent that the book seeks some kind of a, a Sinclair-like policy, correction policy, reform policy answer, you know, it implicitly, you know, suggests that one way to deal with this regional concentration of wealth is to deal with with the economic concentration of so many sectors of, of the economy and certain companies. And that the book makes an implicit case for an antitrust, for a new approach to antitrust, basically by bringing to bear the, the regional element to it, showing that this economic concentration that we're now experiencing not only distorts markets in, in ways that that are not healthy and that, that the economists and the sharp antitrust legal minds are now explaining to us, but also has, has a regional effect and contributes to our regional disparities that have been so kind of unhealthy um, for our country and our politics. So it, it points one in that direction in a sort of implicit way. But then it also definitely was meant to sort of describe who we've become as a country and, and definitely to have some kind of an effect on the general consciousness of, of I, what I guess what I would describe as your, your average center-left, middle-upper-middle-class, um, liberal consumer who probably uses Amazon quite a lot, has used it even more this past year during the pandemic, and probably has not thought all that much you know, about what lies behind the one click. To not only get that reader to think more about what lies behind the one click in terms of the warehouses and the drivers and and the cardboard makers that supply chain that's that's bringing the box to them but just to get them to think more generally about the country as a whole i have a lot of my reporting the last few years has been has been an attempt to kind of bridge these disparate worlds that you know have gotten so starkly removed from each other and i, I travel between them a lot and i like to kind of bring news of one to the other, and and I do believe that that um, that there's a real basic purpose served in building empathy or the potential for empathy. And I'll say that I have I felt this purpose all the more strongly this past year because I have been astonished by the the alacrity with which a lot of 
people did embrace the one-click life during the past year, this sort of hunkering down um, and, and sealing ourselves off, which was, of course, at the behest of the recommendation of our public health authorities. Um, but the there was a wholesale nature of the embrace, the alacrity of the embrace, um, and the extent to which we, we may not be willing to really to, to, to move on from it now, um, even as, as conditions gradually improve. One hope of the book is that it will help to, to get us to re-engage somewhat in the physical world around us and the, the world of our of the places we live, our communities, not just, you know, not just in terms of using local businesses, returning to the physical world around us in, in all of its forms, whether it's you know, the theater or, you know, just getting out of, getting back out of our homes and into the physical world, showing the sort of the cost of going full digital, of going full one click, of isolating ourselves and becoming people who simply sit at the computer and, and, and seek all of, seek all of our, our, our fulfillment online and, and then get our wishes delivered in the box on the, that lands on the porch of the stoop. I mean, I'm squarely in that target audience, I will say. I mean, I was somebody who, you know, it's not that I never used Amazon before, but I made a point of always shopping at my local bookshop and shopping at my local grocery store and not even the big box, you know. And, and then, you know, COVID simply had the effect of you know, making us change the calculus. I mean, it, these moment-to-moment -moment decisions have, I think, defaulted us somewhat rationally, as you say, to the convenience structure of Amazon. So, you know, I share profoundly your wish for us to re-engage with the world. But I also wonder, you know, what this last year would have been like if there hadn't been that default option. I mean, yes, there are things we didn't absolutely need. You know, I know lots of people who grew beards. You know, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to, to buy shaving cream. And you know, maybe it would, it's perfectly reasonable to wait weeks or months for a book to come rather than to, you know, have the book come quickly. So it's not that I'm claiming that these consumer creature comforts are somehow my inborn right. They aren't. Um, they're not anybody's. But I do think that in a way, Amazon has entered into our consciousnesses in the last year in a way that is, as you say, genuinely transformative. Um, and I guess my last question for you is, what is the route back? I mean, raising people's consciousness is good. And I, I definitely had the experience in reading your book of thinking, listen, don't just order, think about the supply chain, engage. And I have been thinking about that since I read the book. Um, but I also have to admit to myself that I still haven't stopped as a consequence from clicking the button rather than going to the, to the brick and mortar store, at least at this stage in the pandemic. So how do you think about that transformation of action in relationship to the change in consciousness? Well, I would hope that that as, t as more time goes on and as conditions further improve, that someone like you would be more likely to actually get the heck out of the house and to think harder about it. I do, like I said before, I do believe that we all have agency and I'm not, I'm not absolutist about this. I use Amazon when I have to, it's sort of a last resort thing. And, but it's all about moderation. It's all about, again, it's about scale. It's not all, all or nothing. It's, it's the degree to which, to which we do things. There's, there's, it's a spectrum. But and to the point about how things would have been without them, without what that supposes, I think, is that things might have been actually, you know, somehow vastly worse if we had had to go out out of the house to fill our basic needs. I think what that also overlooks is 
is the fact that while we were doing this, uh, living in this way, we were, of course, relying. You were, you were relying on a whole lot of people who did not have the benefit that you did of, of staying home and ordering your shaving cream in. There were people yes. who there were people who were bringing that to you. Yes. And this book is about those people. Mm-hmm. But it's mostly directed at the people who, who were ordering that shaving cream. And it's, and it's sort of showing you the whole world of all those people who all along were in the warehouses worrying about, about whether the person next to them had COVID. And so... This, yes, this book is about what was happening this past year while all of us were ordering our shaving cream online. Thank you for uh, for the thoughtful conversation and for the extremely thought-provoking book and very beautifully written and, and engaging. Thank you so much. Thank you. Reading Fulfillment and listening to Alec McGillis was a rich and a fascinating experience that affected me both emotionally and intellectually. I will just tell you, you couldn't read a book like this and have a heart and not be affected by the powerful stories of individuals who take a job in an Amazon warehouse because it's the only job that's available to them. And in some cases, even seem to cross the boundary of what we would like to think of as just working conditions in a country like the United States. That is, on the whole, a well-off country in the world. To read these stories is therefore to appreciate the tremendous good fortune of those of us who are able to click the Amazon button to order products, rather than to have to do the heavy lifting, literally in many cases, of getting those products out of their warehouses and to us as the people who are consumers At the same time, the book emphasizes the tremendous wealth gap that has emerged regionally and between different cities. And that, in turn, raises a problem that is more than emotional, that is also intellectual and a question about how power should be distributed in our society. The book and the conversation made me think more seriously than I had before about the question of whether it's okay or not that some places are getting very, very rich as other places are getting very poor. Notice that that's a slightly different question than wealth disparities between individuals. When it comes to wealth disparities between places, we're talking about whole ecosystems that manage to rise through the advantages of attracting people who can earn a lot of money and that create with that rise real forms of displacement and challenge for people who have traditionally lived in those communities. Meanwhile, there are other communities that fail to benefit from the newly emerging economy and those places end up getting poorer. Should we be designing our country, should we be designing our political institutions in such a way as to enhance the equality between geographical areas? This is a very challenging policy question, one which I do not purport to be able to answer myself, and one that, to be fair, Alec McGillis himself does not fully take on in fulfillment. He wants us to ask that question and to feel that question, and he has an implicit answer, which is that we ought to do things differently, without giving us a detailed analysis of what we actually should be doing differently. And that's certainly fine. It's a lot to ask of any book that it both tell the story of our times and tell us what we ought to be doing differently. In the conversation that we had, Alec made the point that there were individual decisions at the level of agency of the corporation that Amazon might have done that might have spread the wealth to a greater degree. But even had Amazon taken those decisions, there's no question that one company alone 
could not have reversed the very substantial differences in distribution that exist geographically in the country with respect to wealth. Power to make decisions like that comes from a wide range of different factors. It includes the incentives that local governments are prepared to provide. It includes the path-dependent developments of different regions based on the educational institutions they have, based on who ends up living there. And it has to do as well with the very complex policy decisions governing real estate, infrastructure, and indeed the history of the United States going back centuries. I hope you'll read Fulfillment, not because it has all the answers, but because it deepens the questions that we ought to be asking around the distribution of power by geography and wealth in the United States today. Until the next time I speak to you, be careful, be safe, and be well. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Martin Gonzalez, and our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.